Our world today seems wild and out of control. It seems almost impossible for ordinary people to make wise decisions that can keep them safe and healthy. Welcome to Words from the Wildwood. I am your host, Richard Stidham, and I hope to give you today a better understanding of what is really happening in the world around you and how you can hear God's voice over the noise of the world around us. Let's go today to our new segment. All right, everybody, welcome back to our podcast today. We are still exploring the book of Revelation. We are in chapter 11 today. We are coming to possibly two of the most exciting characters that you're going to encounter in the book of Revelation. Everyone tends to gravitate toward the Antichrist. They go toward the false prophet. They go toward the beast. All of these types of figures, but really these figures have nothing to teach the church. Remember, buddy, we're going to be gone at this time. We're not going to be on the earth anymore. We won't be here. So really the identity of the beast, the false prophet, all these things really don't matter to us. What matters is right here in chapter 11, sort of a reflection of who we are. Okay, it's an exciting time. The time for the seventh trumpet to sound has come. We know that the the seventh trumpet sort of begins the end of everything that's happening. We'll take a closer look today at what's happening on the earth before the trumpet sounds. Now remember, John has been in heaven. We've been viewing things from a heavenly perspective, from what's going on up there. But now we're going to look back at the earth, look at what God's work is happening to redeem man from the destruction that's coming. God always seeks to redeem those who will turn to him and call on him for his salvation. To get this done, we have the 144,000 witnesses, uh, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. But we have now the special forces coming on the line. We have God's super special source forces. They are the two witnesses. Now, while we're looking at these two special servants of God and their role in the tribulation time, I want us to look carefully. If you look at what's happening with the witnesses during the time of the tribulation, you will see a picture of every life which is committed to Jesus Christ. You will get a picture of your life, what your life looks like, what your life could be if we surrender ourselves to the work that God has for us. This look at our role in God's plan for salvation should inform us, should excite us, and should get us going. The first thing I want you to see right here, this first picture of life um, during this tribulation time is this. The witnesses are sent out. The witnesses are sent out. We know that in the first century, God called his apostles. The word apostle means those who are sent out. Not everybody is sent out to the world. Not everybody is sent out to go to foreign countries. Not everyone is called to go to China or to Africa or to Europe or some other foreign country. Most people are called to bear witness where they are in their place of work, in their place of education. That is what most of us are called to. But every witness is sent out. Take a look at this. Revelation chapter 11 verse 1. Then I was given a measuring rod, like a rod, and these are the words that he was told to me. Go and measure God's sanctuary and the altar, and count those who worship there. But exclude the courtyard outside of the sanctuary. Don't measure it, because it is given to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. I will empower my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days dressed in sackcloth. Remember that sackcloth is a type of rough material, burlapish. 
It's worn during a time of sorrow, a time of weeping. Not comfortable like silk or satin. Not something that is beautiful and attractive, but something that represents the hardness of, of the situation in life. The, the pain and agony in the heart. The pain on the body mirrors the pain in the heart. Now it says in verse 4, These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. Wow, who are they talking about? Let's take a look at this again. Zechariah 4, 12 through 14. Zechariah 12, 4 through 14. Zechariah 4, 12 through 14. I'll get it right one of these days. It says, And a second time I answered and said to him, What are these two branches and the olive trees which are beside the golden pipes from which the golden oil is poured out? Remember in the uh, sanctuary of God, in the holy, in the holy place, there were the menorah, these, these lampstands, and on the top of each one there was a lamp. And there were these golden rods, these golden poles, and they would pour this special sacred oil out to fill the lamps so the light would never go out in God's house. It says this, He said to me, Do you not know what these are? And I said, No, my Lord. Then he said, These are the two anointed ones who stand by the Lord of the whole earth. Wow who stand before the Lord of the whole. That's what verse 4 says. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. So a direct reference to Zechariah, a direct reference to the Old Testament they would know so well, and they go, oh, God prophesied this. God told us this was coming. Now look at verse 5. If anyone wants to harm them, fire comes from their mouths and they consume their enemies. If anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this way. These men have the power to close up the sky so that it does not rain during the days of their prophecy. Their days of their prophecy is 1,260 days or three and a half years. That should ring a bell with all of you who have been kind of studying along the way. So they have the power to close up the sky they also have the power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every plague whenever they wish. Wow, okay. So now we have these two witnesses, these two special forces guys, and they have come to testify to the earth for three and a half years, trying to bring people out of their lethargy, out of their sleep, and bring them back into a relationship with God Almighty. Now, while their identity is not given in the scripture specifically, they are not named in this chapter or anywhere else, there is, by their appearance, something that strikes a bell. In fact, their appearance with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration tells us everything. Let's look at that, Let's look at that experience. Matthew 17, 1-3. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. Amazing. Moses and Elijah appeared to Jesus with Jesus before his uh, leaving the earth. And so we have a very strong point of reference that these are the two uh, witnesses who come back. We know that Elijah never died. Elijah was taken up in the whirlwind after he was separated from Elisha by the uh, fiery chariot. Now, so many people keep thinking that the chariot came down, picked up Elijah and took him away. That's not what happened. Go back to the word of God. The chariot came down blazing with fire, separated the two men, and then a whirlwind 
caught him up into the heavens. We keep talking about this term, caught him up. Whenever God says, come up here, or he called John up into heaven, he would command them to come from the earth to his presence and they would go. So Elijah never died. In fact, Elijah was never even came close to dying because he was always protected by the Spirit of God. So that is one reason why we believe it's him. And it says in 1 Kings 17.1 this, Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe and Gilead said to Ahab, As Yahweh the God of Israel lives, before whom I stand, there shall neither be dew nor rain these years except by my word. You all remember that Ahab is a sinful, wicked king. He married Jezebel, who was a the daughter of a Canaanite priest, so she brought a pagan worship into the house of God, into the very throne room of God. She brought this, this wicked Canaanite worship. And so as a result, what Ahab did was to lead the people away from the worship of the one true God. And so Elijah comes and says, it's not going to rain. People are going to get thirsty. They're going to get dry. They're going to understand that they have sinned against God and that they must turn back to God in order for that water to be restored. Now, three and a half years later, hmm, three and a half years later, I wonder where I've heard that before. Three and a half years later, there is a repentance and Elijah does let the rain come again. He calls for the rain to come. He, in fact, the rain starts to come and he has to run to the south to avoid the, the flooding rains that happen in the north. So this is exactly why we believe that the first character is definitely Elijah. This is something that he did. He called down fire from heaven in 2 Kings 1.12. But Elijah answered him. Now the king has sent 50 guards to grab him, to lay hands on him, to bring him to judgment. And Elijah says, you know, here I am. And then the, uh, the head of these people says to them, um, we know you're a man of God, but come on, come on with us. Come on back down to the king. This is what Elijah said to him in 2 Kings 1.12. If I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50. Then the fire of God came down from heaven and consumed him and his 50 men. Now that sounds like a terrible thing, but these men had come to silence the voice of God, to shut off that word, that, that conviction that was happening through Elijah. And God said, he said, if I'm a man of God, may he take you all. Now, Ahab sends another group of men, another 50 men, and they show up and they go, hey, you know, you, the king says, come on down. And even though we know you're a man of God, you have to come. He said, well, if I'm a man of God, may the God of heaven send fire and take you too. And of course, these men are burned alive. And then the third group of men come, and they're not quite so arrogant, not quite so haughty. And they said, you know, Lord Elijah, um, we know that you're a man of God, and we don't want to die. Please have mercy on us. Have mercy on my men. Have mercy on our families. We're just doing what we're told. God honored the humbleness of this third group of men and went and uh, allowed Elijah to go back with him. So um, the story of fire coming from heaven to to kill those who would who would um, stop the message is very well established in the Old Testament. So um, we definitely know where the fire comes from. We know where the shutting up of the heavens come from. But how about the rest of this? Well, we all know that water turning to blood, the other plagues that are mentioned, are definitely a reference to the deliverance from Egypt when God sent the 10 plagues. And who was it that did that? Moses was the one who acted as God's mouthpiece 
when he took them out of Egypt. He is the one that said, you know, here's, here's what's going to happen. Aaron touched the water. The water turned to blood and people had to repent and the frogs came out and it was a real nightmare. So the two men that are shown here, these witnesses, these witnesses definitely show every indication of being Moses and Elijah. Because um, that's exactly what it says was going to happen. So we had the power to close up the sky, did not rain during the days of their prophecy, and the water was turned to blood, and it struck the earth with every plague that there could be. The whole purpose of this was what? To punish people? To, to show that he was big and tough and that he was God? No, to cause them to repent. The very images here are the images that these people would know. Remember, he's dealing with Israelites, the descendants of the Jewish people, they will know the plagues of Egypt. They're celebrated at Passover every year. They would know because Elijah was the greatest prophet of the Old Testament. He was revered for his power, his authority, the, the, the calling down of fire at Mount Carmel to consume the offering. That's legendary. So they would have seen these things happen. They would know that these witnesses were from God and that they were acting by the power of God. And it would begin to wear at their conscience. So the first thing we see is that witnesses are sent out. Now, you and I don't have the power to call down fire from heaven. We do not have the power to cause plagues. We are not supposed to do that stuff. A couple of the disciples said, Lord, if you want us to, we'll call down fire. And he's like, what? Stop it. Stop it. We're not here to do that. We are here to show people that God loves them, that God cares for them. But these men will come at a time when everyone who stands up for the Lord our God will be in danger of being struck down. Now, remember, they've gone out to measure. They've gone out to measure this sanctuary, this third temple that is going to be rebuilt in the last days, but not the outside courtyard. That's where the courtyard of the Gentiles would have been back in the day. Back in the day, this is where the people who were not necessarily God's chosen people, but those who would gather up, they would come out there. But now it says this outside court will be given to them to destroy, to defile, just as Antiochus Epiphanes had brought in an altar to his gods and had, had sacrificed pork there and had defiled the temple. Um, this sort of defilement is going to happen again. So we go on. So what's happened? Okay, so the witnesses have been sent out. And we think, okay, great. God's going to really rock them and they're going to repent and they're going to get straight. Remember the last time, the first woe that came? It says they did not turn away. Keep that in your mind, church. Keep it in your mind. The first woe, they did not repent. But it says right here, the next thing that happened, the witnesses are struck down. Remember, it's estimated that some 300,000 Christians are slaughtered every year in every corner of our world because they will not give up the testimony of Jesus Christ. There are those out there right now who are being killed for doing what I'm doing right now. The witnesses are struck down. Revelation 11, 7. When they finished their testimony, when their job was done, when three and a half years were complete, the beast that comes up out of the abyss will make war on them, conquer them, and kill them. Remember, to be killed in the service of God was not unexpected. We look back just in, in the book of Revelation. It said to the churches who were suffering, you hold out even though you are killed. You hold out even though you are slaughtered. You will win that Stephanos, that victor's crown, even though you die. And those who stand up for Jesus in our world today 
face that death. All we face is the persecution of people who would hold back our jobs, hold back our friendship. They would, they would turn us away and they would turn a blind eye to us. There's those out there who want to say, you know what? If you are a Christian teacher and you come from a Christian university, we don't want you because you don't believe what we believe. You don't stand for the things we stand for. The world is becoming hostile to Christians. So if you are openly a believer in Jesus Christ, you can expect that that hostility is going to come. So it says it will make war on them, conquer them, and kill them. Verse 8, their dead bodies will lie in the public square of the great city, which is prophetically called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. So we're probably talking about Jerusalem. We're probably talking about the days when the temple will be rebuilt. We'll talk about those days when it will seem like things are turning around, when it seems like things are getting better. It seems like there's peace in the Middle East. I know that sounds impossible, but that's going to happen. It says, verse 9, a representatives from the peoples, tribes, and languages, and nations will view their bodies for three and a half days. Now remember, this was abhorrent to the Jewish hearers of this message. The Jews believed that when someone died, they had to be buried before sunset. They had to be buried before putrefaction could begin. They had to be buried before the stench was powerful. They would immediately bury someone who had died. But these men were so hated after three and a half years of thirst and three and a half years of plagues and going through what the Egyptians went through and seeing those who, who came against them uh, meet a horrible death, that they were, they were glad. It says in verse 10, those who live on the earth will gloat over them and celebrate and send gifts to one another. Somebody once called this a satanic Christmas a satanic Christmas, where they're celebrating what they think is the silencing of the Christian message, where they think, oh, these witnesses that we couldn't stop for so long, now we've silenced them, now we have freedom, now we can live our lives any way we please. And said so they will send gifts to one another because these two prophets brought judgment on those who live on the earth. They didn't want to hear the truth, they didn't want to know the truth, and these men vexed them, it bothered them. So there is a time set where men will have to hear the truth. They will try to silence that message in those three and a half years, but that message will be unstoppable. And then they will encounter this horrible time. They will encounter this time when a sick anti-Christian Christmas uh, is celebrated worldwide. The, the, the ending of the testimony of these terrible people, and they, it will be a great worldwide celebration. But here's the thing. Their celebration will be short-lived. Because the thing that you will see here is the same that you see in America today. You see the same thing you see around our world. When a Christian dies, their message doesn't end. I've read story after story of people in the former Soviet Union, people in China, people in Vietnam, people in other countries where Christians were persecuted. And even though they were persecuted and put into horrible conditions and some were killed, the, me the memory of them, the memory of their message, the memory of their sacrifice lived on and affected lives even after they were dead. And that would be my hope. My hope would be that our lives would be so powerful, so impactful that even though we die, even though the years go by and we come to the end of our lives naturally or, or there's some sort of persecution that ends it prematurely, that our lives will have had an impact. They will have made an impact in the world. Because here's the thing. After they are struck down, 
These witnesses will be set on high one more time. Revelation 11.11 But after three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them and they stood on their feet. Now, they should be a pile of molding flesh and bones and it should be terrible, especially if this is Jerusalem and it's hot and it's sticky and all that stuff. They should have been nothing, but it says that breath of life will enter them and they will stand on their feet. Do you know what this sounds like, church? This sounds like when Ezekiel saw the valley of dry bones. When he saw the valley of dry bones and he heard the stirring of the Spirit of God and he heard the rattling of the bones and the bones were attached and the muscle and the sinew appeared and the flesh covered them and they stood up as living beings. And when they stood up, you can only imagine the impact on the world. It said they stood on their feet and then it says, so great fear fell on all those who saw them. And then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. So these witnesses are resurrected. They are standing alive. I can, I can see you know, news crews that have been celebrating their death have been covering this. Now they see them stand. They see them alive. They see them victorious over death. And it had to horrify and terrify everybody. And then they hear an audible voice, come up here. This is the voice that proudly called Elijah up. This is the voice that did call John the Apostle to heaven to witness all of this stuff. This is the voice I believe the church will hear when God removes his church from the earth in the rapture. We will hear, come up here. And that will be our, our sign that we have won, that we are victorious, and that we're out of here. Well, now these men who have suffered and died and laid dead for three and a half days, they will rise up and they will ascend. It says they went up to heaven in a cloud while their enemies watched them. And at that moment, at that moment, a violent earthquake took place. A tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in that earthquake. The survivors were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. Now here it goes. Verse 14. The second woe has passed. Take note. The third woe is coming quickly. If you do not have your Bible open right now, if you have not opened it and been underlining, I beg you, replay this message. Go back, underline these things. Why? Because this is their victory. You may not think anyone knows you're a Christian. You may not think that anyone has been impacted by you, but you will not know until this day whether any person has been touched or affected by you, by your testimony, by your unwillingness to back down, by your unwillingness to accept the standards of the world, but to accept only God's standards. Now, I work in a university. I work in a place where I cannot openly testify as to my faith in Jesus Christ, but people know that I'm a Christian. I do not judge them publicly. I do not condemn them. I do not speak harshly to them. Why? Because when they see me and they, they say things like, hey, how you doing, Mr. Richard? How you doing? How's that day going? I say, it's doing good. I said, because God is good and I'm still here and I'm not dead yet. And, and they, they get that. I don't know if they get it all, but they get what I can say. And here's the thing. I've had people ask me, point blank, why are you so happy? And I tell them because I've been a Christian now for more than half of my life. And he has given me everything I could ever have dreamed for. And he's given me a purpose and a reason to live. And he's surrounded me with people that I love and who love me. And that is what it means to be a believer. They, they can walk away and they can reject that. They can walk away and say it's stupid. They can walk away and think I'm an old fool. And that's cool. I get that. 
If you are not a believer, none of this will make sense to you. The word of God says the preaching of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. They're perishing. They're dying in their sin. If we can't love them and slip in the gospel and show them that the presence of Jesus Christ makes a difference in our life, then then how else can they be changed? How else can they be transformed? The Holy Spirit can bring a person to salvation, but they have given us the opportunity. God has given us the chance to be part of that. We are seed planters. We are waterers. We are fertilizers. We are people who pour out our lives in the hope that someone can be changed by that Spirit of God. So these witnesses did their job for three and a half years. Now they were they suffered the death of a dog and they, they were laid in the street and they were not tended to. They were not given a, a decent burial because God wanted them to be seen as dead so they could rise up. See, when Jesus was buried, they said, oh, the disciples came in the night and they stole him away. They stole his body and now they're spreading this nonsense. Really? Because there were 500 witnesses to Jesus' resurrection. How come none of them said, oops, I'm sorry, I recant, I didn't see nothing? No, because they saw it. And you see, the whole thing is, we can't unsee it. If those bodies are laying there for three and a half days and the cameras are on it and the whole world sees it, they're going to know when their resurrection happens, when they ascend into heaven, and they are going to be afraid. They're going to be very afraid. Let's keep going. So the witnesses have been sent. They have been struck down. Now they've been set on high. And I I love it. It says um, that the survivors were terrified and gave glory to God, the God of heaven. Remember, back in uh, Revelation 9.21, those who suffered under the first woe, that was the fire, the smoke, the sulfur from these uh, oddly shaped horses, these engines of demonic destruction, uh, they did not repent of their pharmacia, of their sins, of their of their ways of living. But now, now that they have seen this, they realize just exactly how much danger they're in. They are beginning to understand because those who are Jews will see in this that every indication has been given that this is God. This is their God, the God they said they believed in. He is acting to wake them up to the final judgment. So what's the last thing we see? When these witnesses are finished, then judgment will come. Revelation eleven fifteen. the seventh angel blew his trumpet. This is the one you've been waiting for, church. The seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah. Don't, be mis- don't misunderstand. Everything belongs to the Lord. Everything belongs to Yahweh. Everything belongs to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is the master of all things. But for a time, he has given men the opportunity to to, to be this powerful element and to to do what they wanted to do and perpetrate any uh, sin, foul, nasty thing they wanted to do. But now, now it ends. Now he's going to take his control. Now he's going to take his mastery. And it says, and he will reign forever and ever. The 24 elders who were seated before God on their thrones fell face down and worshiped God, saying, we thank you, Lord God, the Almighty, who is and who was, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. So something powerful is going to happen. Remember, the third woe is still to come, and we're going to see it very soon. The nations were angry, but your wrath has come. This is absolutely how you know the church is not here because we are not meant to suffer wrath. We are meant to suffer tribulation, but not wrath. That's what the word of God says. 
So this wrath coming out could not have come on us. That's why we have to be gone. The time has come for the dead to be judged and to give the reward to your servants, the prophets, the saints, and to those who fear your name, both small and great. And the time has come to destroy those who would destroy the earth. Now look at verse 19. God's sanctuary in heaven was opened and the ark of his covenant appeared in his sanctuary. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings of thunder, an earthquake, and severe hail. Now you remember that the Ark of the Covenant has not been seen really since Nebuchadnezzar sacked Jerusalem and took all of Israel into 70 years of captivity. We assume it was returned after the 70 years, but there's no record of it being returned. There are many who believe that the, that the Ark was hidden so that Nebuchadnezzar could not steal it. They believe that when the temple was redone after the 70 years, that the, there was no Ark of the Covenant. Remember, the Ark of the Covenant is two pieces. The bottom is the Ark, which carries the scrolls and all the tablets. The upper piece is the Bema seat, the seat of mercy. That is the place above which the Shekinah, the glory of God, appears. And that is where he meets his people in the sacrifice. So there are those who believe that the the, um, Ark of the Covenant was never returned. There was no Bema seat. There was no place of mercy. And so this this thundering of of lightning, thunder, earthquakes, and severe hail, these are all associated with the power of God's presence. So the Ark of the Covenant, which represents the Shekinah, the presence of God, has been replaced. Do you know how? Church, you should know this by now. Where does the Shekinah appear in the New Testament, in you, in the believer. Every, every believer is sealed with the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit dwells in us. See, we are the presence of God on earth. We are those implements of change. That's the whole part of it. There was no more need for that ark, because now God did not dwell above the cherubim, above the, the ark, on the beam of sea. He doesn't dwell there anymore. He dwells in the hearts and lives of his people. Take a look at this. Now it's time for the third wrath to come, right? To fall, to fall in the world. Now some have called the first three and a half years of, the, of, this, of this time the tribulation. They have called the last three and a half years the great tribulation because of the sounding of the seventh trumpet, because of the bowls of wrath that will be poured down on the earth. And in the coming chapters, we will look closer at those years and at those events. But I want you to think about this first. Jeremiah 3 15 through 17. All right, write it down, look it up. Jeremiah 3, 15 through 17. And I will give you shepherds after my own heart who will feed you with knowledge and understanding. And when you have multiplied and been fruitful in the land, in those days, declares Yahweh, they shall no more say the Ark of the Covenant of Yahweh. It shall not come to mind or be remembered or missed. That's how you know it's not there anymore. Or even missed. It shall not be made again. Remember, they have remanufactured all of the implements for temple worship except the Ark of the Covenant because they believe they have it. They believe it's in Jeremiah's grotto under the Temple Mount. They believe that. So they have not remade it. But this says, you shall not call um, it shall not be called the throne. I'm sorry. Let me back up here a little bit. The Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. It shall not come to mind or be remembered or missed. It shall not be made again. At that time, Jerusalem shall be called the throne of Yahweh, and all nations shall gather to it, to the presence of Yahweh in Jerusalem, and they shall no more stubbornly 
follow their own evil hearts. This is the final time when Jesus Christ will reign in Jerusalem, when he will sit upon that throne, when he will take his place as master of the earth. But there'll be no need for an Ark of the Covenant. There's no need to put blood on it, no need to sacrifice to it anymore. What there will be a need to is to have that personal relationship with Jesus Christ as Lord, as Savior, and that is what we will go to Jerusalem to celebrate. Jerusalem will become the center of the world again. In many ways, it's, it's still the center of the world. It's the center for the three great um, Christian and non-Christian religions, uh, Christianity, Judaism, and Islam, all consider Jerusalem a holy and a sacred site. The Dome of the Rock sits on top of Temple Mount, right next to where we believe the uh, temple will be rebuilt later. So uh, they will be dwelling there in peace, but there will be only one Lord. There will be only one master of the earth. And that day is coming. So the trumpet has sounded. The trumpet has sounded. And now, church, now it's time for us to get right down to the exciting times. Now we're going to have a revelation, a revelation of the Antichrist, of the false prophet, of the dragon who speaks like a man. We're going to see all these things begin to happen. And remember, these are symbolic of what John saw. John saw something, and this was the only way he could describe it. He was not seeing actual horses or actual scorpions. He was seeing demonic representations that took these forms that people could understand. So I invite you, get ready, study again, come back next week, and we are going to jump right back into the Word of God and see what God holds for us right here in the Wildwood. Thank you for joining us today on Words from the Wildwood. We are a listener-supported program presented without commercial interruption. If you have enjoyed this program and want to support our outreach, please send any gifts to Richard Stidham, P.O. Box 1321, Baytown, Texas 77521. Thank you for listening today. God bless, and we will see you again in the Wildwood.